Well, good morning, church. It is our pleasure to be with you all. As Pastor mentioned, we are the Depew family, church planting missionaries to the country of South Africa. I would like to tell you a little bit about our family and then a little bit about our ministry, and then we'll open the word together. Uh, my wife and I, we did not grow up in Christian homes. We were actually both reached as a result of our home church's youth ministry. We're being sent out of Grace Baptist Church in Middletown, Ohio, just north of Cincinnati. So I was 14 years old when I first heard the gospel. I was invited to go to a church camp, and uh, shortly at the end of that camp, I was converted and then consequently baptized. My wife has a very similar testimony. She didn't grow up in a Christian home either, but she had an aunt who was a faithful member of our home church, and her aunt did the same thing. Her aunt invested her life into my wife's life. And so we're so thankful for how the Lord uh, has sustained us over the years, how he has called us to himself and, and called us to the ministry. It truly is a wonderful thing to behold. Very thankful for that. Um, so when we were um, basically involved in the youth ministry, uh, our youth pastor, who is now actually our sending pastor, he always encouraged us teenagers to spend time with missionaries anytime we would have missionaries at church. Our church was a very missions-minded, missions-hearted church. And so my wife and I, we did that. Uh, we had a number of missionaries that were sent out of our church, and whenever they would come, we would just spend time with them, ask them questions, and just become friends with them. And so uh, my senior year in high school, I was invited to go to a missions trip to the country of Morocco. And that was a life-changing trip for me, just because as an 18-year-old kid, I began to see Muslims uh, bowing down, praying to Allah up to five times a day. And that just boggled my mind. And more than anything, it allowed me to see the great need there is in this world for gospel-preaching missionaries, taking the word to those who have never heard. And so God gave me a burden for the loss uh, that year, I would like to say. And then a year later, I took my second mission trip to the country of China. And that is when the Lord specifically gave me a burden for the Chinese people. So my wife and I, we got married a year out of high school. And then uh, we just started uh, training and serving at our home church. And the Lord made a way for us to go to the mission field uh, as interns, basically. We spent six months in Taiwan for a missions internship. And the Lord taught us so much during this internship. We learned so much about missions, so much about the gospel and about Jesus, and very thankful for that time. But towards the end of that internship is when God confirmed us that we have to plant churches and train men. So uh, shortly at the end of that internship, we started raising support to go to China uh, full-time. The Lord got us to mainland China in 2018. We spent two years in China, very thankful for our time in China. It was basically spent just learning Mandarin Chinese. For those of you who are not aware, uh, Mandarin Chinese is one of the most difficult languages to learn for a native English speaker. So our work was definitely cut out for us, that's for sure. Uh, but God was kind to us. He gave us favor with the language. And we finally started seeing some progress uh, being made toward that end. And we felt like uh, we started seeing fruit from some of the relationships and the friendships that we were able to, to form there in China. And then the year 2020 happened. And I don't think I need to tell you guys much more. I mean, I think for some of us, when we hear 2020, we might get a little PTSD, right? Because we associate 2020 with COVID. And so uh, COVID impacted the entire world, us included. We went to extend our visas in the summer of 2020, and uh, our visa applications were denied. Essentially, we were told that we had two weeks that we had to leave the country. 
And that was really hard for us because we were missionaries to China. We loved China. China was home to us. And being told that you have to leave home was extremely difficult. But at the end of the day, we trusted the Lord. We knew that God was sovereign. We know that he's in control. And we know that he is the one that orders our steps. So we trusted him. We transitioned back to the States and decided to uh, transition our ministry to the country of Taiwan. For those of you who are not aware, Taiwan is a very similar culture. They speak the same language. So for us, it was a no-brainer. So all we needed to do, so we thought, was apply for visas, and then we could get to Taiwan just in a couple months. And so we attempted to do that. And in the winter of 2020, we applied for Taiwanese visas. Little did we know, a week after we applied for our visas was the same week that Taiwan closed their borders due to covid and their borders were closed for over two years. So we've basically been stuck stateside for the last two and a half years, trying to get to the mission field, but being unable to do so. And so the Lord has closed door after door, and it's been really hard um, going through the season of waiting on the Lord. Um, but one of the things that God has revealed to us is that he is in control. He knows what's best. He is the one who orders our steps. And so that's been a hard lesson to learn, but a lesson that we're so thankful for, because if, if we've learned anything from our time, it's that um, our value and our, um, yeah, our value is not determined by what we do. It's determined who we are in Jesus. And so very thankful for how the Lord has taught us that lesson. I would have chosen a different way, but I'm not God, and that is a very good thing. So um, earlier this year, after seeking counsel from the pastors of our church and also different mentors in my life, uh, we thought it would be best to consider a field change uh, so that we could actually get to the mission field finally. And so that is where South Africa comes into play. So when we were on deputation back in 2017, trying to raise support for China, we met a family in a missions conference in the Hunter family, and they were missionaries to Cape Town, South Africa. And we were in many conferences uh, during our time uh, raising support, but there was just something special about this conference. There was something special about this family. We hit it off with them, became fast friends, and the Lord just gave us a burden for that field, for Cape Town, South Africa. But remember, we were missionaries to China, so it, it, we had no idea what to do with that. But looking back, we can see, oh, that's what you were doing, Lord. That, that is what you had in mind. So it, it, it's really wonderful how God has brought this all full circle and how uh, he has worked out everything. And so we are super excited to get to Cape Town, South Africa. I want to spend just a couple minutes telling you about what ministry is going to look like for us in Cape Town, South Africa. So Cape Town, population of 5 million people. It's a diverse city with influences from Europe, Asia, and other African countries, truly making it a melting pot of peoples and cultures. Cape Town for us, though, and what really excites us is that it's a strategic city to reach and that it attracts people from the entire continent of Africa as a result of its natural beauty and the economic opportunities. This means that we will have the opportunity to reach people from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue for the glory of God. Because think about Africa. What's one of the adjectives that you think when you hear Africa? For me, it's poverty. For me, it's poor. Uh, Not so much in Cape Town. And so that's why it attracts people from the entire continent. And so that's why we're going to have a wonderful opportunity to, to reach many people for our Lord. I often describe Cape Town, though, as a paradox. 
The reason and what I mean by that is that it is one of the most beautiful cities in the world because of its natural beauty, but it's also one of the most broken cities in the world. For those of you who know your South African history, you've probably heard of the apartheid before, right? It's basically legalized segregation. Uh, This has had countless effects on this city, which has resulted in poverty, racial tension, and crime. And despite all of these issues, Cape Town's greatest need is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that being said, I would like to share with you three major goals for our church planting ministry in Cape Town. Number one, bold evangelism. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1.16 said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This means that we plan to proactively speak to others about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We relish any opportunity that we get to tell people about the most wonderful story in the world. We primarily plan to do this relationally. Our desire is to engage the community in as many creative ways as possible. And one of the exciting things about Cape Town is that people are very friendly. So as foreigners, we're going to have plenty of opportunities to meet people and to tell them about Jesus. This brings us to our second goal, number two, relational discipleship. What do I mean by that? Well, our Lord gave us a command in Matthew 28, 19. Do you remember what that command is? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So in other words, our discipleship, it's going to consist of helping believers grow in their faith through life on life discipleship, through relationships. We plan on using the same method to invite unbelievers to study the Bible with us, to learn more about Jesus. And this brings us to our third and final goal, number three, church planting. Have you ever wondered why missionaries always call themselves church planting missionaries? Have you ever wondered what is the big deal about church planting? Why is it important that we plant churches? What is the big deal? Well, I would like to make a case for this, but I want to do it in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2.14, the prophet prophesied that one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Think about that. I want to read that one more time. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isn't that wonderful? The primary way that God is going to make this glorious truth a reality is through the local church. In other words, we firmly believe that the local church is God's chosen way to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church is the vehicle that God uses to get the gospel to those who have never heard. Church, I believe, and I believe you believe as well, that God loves his church. God values his church. And as a result, we want to see healthy gospel-centered churches planted all throughout the city of Cape Town for God's glory alone. So, what is the ultimate goal for our work in Cape Town? If I had to boil it down to one thing, what would that be? For me, this is a no-brainer, and it can actually be found in in Revelation 7, verses 9 through 10. And I'll read that for us real quick. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne 
and to the Lamb. Isn't that glorious? This is what it's all about. Understanding that the church is not just this body right here, although this certainly is a part of it. We have to understand that our God has a heart for the world. Amen. Our God has a desire to see people from every nation reach with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So our family, we are so excited that we get to have a small part in what God is doing in this world. So we have uh, been traveling full time for the last few months to try to get to Cape Town. Um, earlier this year, we, we realized that we lost some of our support. So we currently have 80% of our financial support. And so we're going to be raising, Lord willing, the rest of that the next uh, five or six months. We're hoping to move to Cape Town uh, probably in July of this year, Lord willing. So definitely pray about that if you would. Pray that the Lord would provide the support that we need so we can get to Cape Town as soon as possible. And then the second prayer request, just pray for safety as we travel, especially this winter. Uh, Weather can be pretty unpredictable, as, as you all well know. So definitely pray that the Lord gives us traveling mercies as well. Church, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. At this time, uh, we will be in the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 16, so please feel free to go there. And I do have some prayer cards uh, that you could pray for our family and our ministry in Cape Town. So please see me after the service. I'll be in the lobby and would like to make sure that everybody gets a prayer card. So this morning, we will be in 2 Chronicles 16. But first, when I say the name Alexander Hamilton, what comes to mind? Some might think of him as being one of our country's founding fathers. Others might think of the guy whose face is on the $10 bill. Perhaps the younger generation, they just think about the the musical titled Hamilton, which was about his life. Regardless, Hamilton, he was an immigrant and an orphan, and he came to America in the 18th century. Hamilton came from nothing, but because of his intelligence and his unmatched work ethic, he quickly rose to prominence. Hamilton is known for creating our country's financial system, the Federalist Party, the Coast Guard, and the New York Post. His contributions no doubt shaped our very country. And from the outside looking in, it seemed like Hamilton had it all. A wonderful wife, he had great kids, a brilliant mind, a promising career in politics, so much so that many historians believe that Hamilton was poised to become the next president of the United States. Then one day, news broke out that Hamilton had an affair, and he paid people off to keep it quiet. As you can imagine, especially in these days, this scandal quickly ruined any chance he had of becoming president. You know, these type of stories of prominent figures who spend most of their lives doing wonderful and great things, but then risk it all because of one moment, these stories are very poignant. They're very sad, are they not? There are even stories like this that have happened within Christian circles, within the church. And every time that happens, it's very disheartening, is it not? But I think there are two different reactions that we can have when we hear of this, when we hear of a prominent figure who falls from grace. One reaction, you could say, well, how could they do that? 
How could they not have known everything that they were risking? What is wrong with this person? That's, that's one reaction that you can have. The second reaction, you could say, wow, if they were capable of doing this, what about me? What about me? And as my previous pastor used to say, there go I, but for the grace of God. Now, why did I share this story? I share this story because there is a king in the Bible who reminds me a lot of Hamilton, and his name is King Asa. Just a a reminder, in case you forgot, a thousand years before Jesus was born, there was King David. And after David died, his son Solomon took over the United Kingdom of Israel. After Solomon died, as you might remember, there were all kinds of conflict. So this United Kingdom of Israel divided into how many kingdoms? Two, right? So you have Southern Kingdom, typically referred to as Judah. And then you have the Northern Kingdom, typically referred to as Israel. Now, where does Asa fit in all of this? Well, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, they ruled over these two kingdoms. Rehoboam's son was Abijah, and Abijah's son was Asa. And that is where we are today. So before we jump into King Asa's story, we do need to lay some groundwork in in order to properly understand this context and to see where this story fits in the narrative of the Bible. So just quick background on 2 Chronicles. If you ever followed any type of Bible reading plan before, once you get to this section, this is usually the section that people have already given up, right? Kings, Chronicles, this seems to be one of the most neglected sections in the Bible. And have you ever wondered why is that? One of the reasons is because there's just so many genealogies, uh, so many difficult names to pronounce. And it seems like some of these stories, especially in Kings and Chronicles, it seems like they just keep repeating themselves over and over again. Have you ever wondered why that is? One of the reasons is because Second Chronicles is a book that is retelling stories that happened 500 years in the past. It's written to a group of people. They're living after the exile, and they're coming into a situation that is marked by disappointment and opposition. And these people are starting to wonder, is God still for us? Does God still care about us? Church, I don't know where you are this morning, but inevitably I think that there might be some of us this morning that are wondering a very similar question. Has God forgotten about me? Does God still care? Is God still for me? My hope this morning is to prove, yes, he does still care about us. Yes, he is still for us. And I hope to do that ultimately by pointing us to Jesus. So now the the chronicler, the author of this book, he begins to write to these individuals, recounting their history in a way that teaches them about the faithfulness of God. And as I mentioned, the, the books of Kings and Chronicles, they have a lot of the same stories. So what's the difference? Well, first and second Kings covers both the northern and the southern kingdom. But first and second Chronicles is exclusively focused on the southern kingdom, Judah. Another important difference, the author of Kings, he was highlighting the unfaithfulness of man. But the author of Chronicles, he was highlighting the faithfulness of God. And not only the faithfulness of God, but the faithfulness of God through the lineage of King David. So why is this important? Well, remember, who is this being written to? 
This is being written to exiles. And where are they from? The southern kingdom, same as David. Another interesting thing to point out is the promise that God made to David. Do you remember that promise in 2 Samuel 7? God promised that he will establish his kingdom through David and said that his kingdom would last how long? Forever. An incredible promise from God. And guess what happened? True to that prophecy, if you follow the kings of Judah, there was always a descendant of David on the throne until Babylon showed up and exiles the people to Babylon. And so God's people, they start to wonder, did the armies of Babylon have the power to destroy God's plans? Did they have the power to make God a liar? This is what the people were thinking. So this speaks to the anguish, to the anxiety that this audience was feeling. To them, it almost seemed like that God was dropping the ball. To them, it almost seemed like God was not coming through for his people. I mean, think about it. There is no king now. So why would the author of this book think that his retelling of the, of the Davidic line, why would he think that this would make any difference in the heart of these people? I mean, remember, these people are struggling. They need hope. They need help. So why would this make any difference in their lives? Well, there's two reasons why he, he's doing what he's doing. There's two purposes that he has for writing this book. Number one, I mentioned it earlier, it's to highlight the faithfulness of God. But number two, this promise that we just talked about, this promise of God establishing his eternal kingdom through David, guess what? It has not yet been fulfilled. So believing in the faithfulness of God was essential for them to have hope for the one that God was going to send to save his people. And so this ultimately gives us greater insight into the purpose of the Old Testament. So if I ask you that question, what is the purpose of the Old Testament? What, was, what is it there for? Well, one of the things that we see throughout the entire Old Testament is failure, right? You see failure over and over and over again. And how do we know this? Well, look at who God chose to lead his people in the Old Testament. Three different types of people, prophets, priests, and kings. So who were the prophets? Remember, they were supposed to be God's messengers, but oftentimes they did not listen to him. And this left the people longing for a better prophet. What about the priests? Remember, they were supposed to represent God on the behalf of the people, but ultimately they failed. And this left the people longing for a better prophet. And then lastly, kings. So you ask, well, finally they got it right, correct? Wrong. No, they were the worst of them, right? They weren't good enough. And this left the people longing for a better king. And I love Second Chronicles so much because it does an amazing job at helping us anticipate and long for the true and better king, King Jesus. One last thing. In Romans 15, 4, the Apostle Paul helps us basically interpret the Old Testament. I don't know if you know this, but he does. So I'm going to go to, you can go with me if you want, Romans 15, 4. So in order to properly understand Second Chronicles in a way that we're supposed to, I think we need to heed Paul's warning, Paul's instruction in Romans 15, 4. Very, very helpful. Romans 15, 4. 
Paul said, For whatsoever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have what? We might have hope. So what did Paul mean by whatever was written in former days? He's talking about the Old Testament. He's saying the Old Testament, there is a certain way to read the Old Testament, right? There's a way to read it faithfully and correctly, and there's a way to read it incorrectly. So there's two things that he pointed out here, two reasons. Number one, he said it's for our learning, for our instruction. This means that the Old Testament does tell us how to live and how not to live, right? There's no getting around that. Unfortunately, though, many Christians today, we make the mistake of just focusing on this purpose. We, we say things like, what does this passage say about me? And what do I need to do as a result? But friend, this is not how we're supposed to read the Bible. Why? Because remember, the Bible is a book first and foremost about who? It's about God. And so this brings us to the second point. And this is what Paul told us. Ultimately, it was to give us hope. So this means everything written in the Old Testament was written for our instruction. That means it's going to tell us things to do, things not to do. But guess what else? It also was written to give us hope. So as we study Asa's life this morning, I want us to keep these two purposes in mind. Yeah, this passage certainly is going to tell us things to do, but it's also going to give us hope. So who was King Asa? Well, In 2 Chronicles 16, we figure out that Asa, he became king shortly after the division, and he served king of Judah for 41 years. And almost all of those years were wonderful. I mean, God blessed Asa and used him in some amazing ways. And he was one of the better kings of Judah for about 35 years. And then something happened that made Asa change. And to find out what happened, let's go to 2 Chronicles 16, verse 1. Second Chronicles 16, verse 1. In the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. So basically, this means Asa, he's being threatened by this king named Baasha, who was king of the northern kingdom. As a result, though, Asa made a huge mistake. What we figure out is that Asa trusted in man and not in God. Verse 2, Then Asa took silver and gold from the treasures of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus. So the first thought that came into Asa's mind when he was facing an impossible situation is money and a political alliance. Can you think, think about that? Money and a political alliance. So he takes the money from the house of the Lord and he gives it to the king of Syria. The king of Syria takes the money and in exchange breaks the covenant that Syria had with Baasha and he starts attacking them until they back off and they're no longer a threat to King Asa's kingdom. And so from the outside looking in, this plan that Asa came up with, guess what? It worked. It really, really worked for a while. And to the watching world, it makes it look like 
Asa saved the kingdom. Makes it seem like Asa was the hero. He, he made the brilliant tactical plan that resulted in his kingdom being safe and delivered. But church, did God see it that way? No, look at verse 7. At that time, Hananiah the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. So basically, God tells Asa that he actually gave his kingdom away because he trusted in himself more than he trusted in God. So in other words, God was saying, Asa, if you would have just come to me for help to begin with, I would have rescued you. I would have provided for you. I would have saved you. But Asa did not do that. Regardless, God and his graciousness and in his kindness even sends him a prophet to allow Asa to repent. This prophet, Hanani, he wanted to remind Asa of all the amazing things that God did through him when he was trusting God with all of, all of his heart. Because remember, for over 35 years, he was God's man. He was a great king, a great leader. Then something happened. And this is what he's saying to remind them in, in verse 8. Were not the Ethiopians and Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. So this is referring to something that happened in 2 Chronicles 14. Earlier in Asa's reign, his kingdom came under attack by the Ethiopians. And they were in big trouble. The reason is because they were huge underdogs in this fight. If you remember, the Ethiopians, they had an army the size of one million soldiers. And Asa's army was half that size. So they were huge underdogs in this fight. So to find out what happened, let's actually go there. Let's go to 2 Chronicles 14, and we're just going to look at verses 11 and 12. And what I want us to do is to see if, if we can notice any contrast between the way that Asa uh, conducted himself earlier in his ministry and then the way that he did it later at the end of his ministry. 2 Chronicles 14, verses 11 and 12. See if you notice any difference whatsoever. And Asa cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we have come against the multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. So the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. So church, what happened? What was the first thing that Asa did when he was facing an impossible situation? Did he turn to money? Did, did he turn to a political alliance? No, what did he do? He called out to God for help. He was wholly reliant on God. But as we find out at the beginning of chapter 16, somewhere along the way, even after seeing God do impossible things, even after leading Judah through revival, for some reason, Asa stopped trusting God. And so how does Asa respond to this prophet? We find out back in 2 Chronicles 16, so feel free to jump back there again. Uh, 2 Chronicles 16, starting in verse 10. 
Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in the stocks in the prison, for he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa afflicted cruelties upon some of the people at that at that time. Verse twelve and thirteen. In the thirty ninth year of his reign, Asa was diseased in his feet, and his disease became severe. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but sought help from the physicians. And Asa slept with his fathers, dying in the 41st year of his reign. So as we can see, he did not take it well. Asa did not repent, and essentially he died in disgrace. What a sad story. So this begs the question, how is it possible for someone who achieves so much, for someone who experienced God's power and God's blessing in their life to such great extents, How is it possible for that person to experience such an incredible fall? Church, the only answer is that I think we need to remember that the Christian life is not about us and it's not about our achievements. No, we don't ever reach a point in the Christian life where we can just coast and take it easy because as long as we are all still living on this earth, as long as we still have a sinful flesh, we will always need the grace of God every waking moment. So what does this mean for us today? As a result of Asa's rebellion, the author of this book, the Chronicler, he's giving us some insight into the faithfulness of God. So you have to remember, what is the purpose of this book? It's not just to tell King Asa's story. That was already done in 1 Kings. No, the purpose is to tell this recently exiled group of people Asa's story, but through a different lens, the lens of God's faithfulness. He was giving his audience hope. So to find out what that hope is, let's go to 2 Chronicles 16, and let's camp out in verse 9 for a moment. So I don't know about you guys, uh, but I need a little hope this morning. Uh, if you turn on the news for five minutes, uh, how, how do you generally feel at the end of that time? Do you feel pretty encouraged? Do you feel pre- pretty bolstered in your faith, right? No, of course not, right? The world in which we're living today, it's not very encouraging right now, right? It seems like almost everything is on fire. It seems like we are just living uh, in a world devoid of hope. But for those of us who are in Christ We know that that is not our story. We know that that is not the end of our story. And so we need to be reminded of good truth like we see here in verse 9. Let me read that for us. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those those whose heart is blameless toward him. So there's two things that we're going to see here in this verse. Number one, God is willing to give us his strong support support. God is willing to give us a strong support. So notice there at the first half of this verse, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. How is this depicting God here in this verse? Is this depicting God as someone who is just um, absent from his people? Someone who's not engaged with his creation? No, this is telling us about a God who is active a God who is on the move, a God who is there for his people. So you have to remember the context of this passage. Remember, God's people, they're returning, they're living post-exile, and they're not sure if God is still on their side. 
However, the author is clear in this passage that God is never withholding his strength from us. He is willing to help us. God is willing to save us. In other words, church, God is not done with us yet. God lives to display his glory. But now the question remains, who is he willing to give his strong support to? Because there is a condition here in this verse. And this brings us to our second point. Number two, God is looking for blameless hearts. Look at the second half of verse nine. To give strong support to those heart who is blameless. The, the old King James uh, uses the word perfect. Um, and, and it doesn't matter if you use perfect or blameless. Um, both of these words are kind of difficult for us to swallow, right? Um, I don't know about you, but this phrase makes me a little nervous. I don't know about you, because uh, the word blameless or perfect is not a word. It's not an adjective that I would use to describe my heart, right? It's probably the last word that I would use to describe my heart. So if this is the condition in order for God to give us his strong support, then who in the world can live up to this standard? No one, right? But it's important to understand that this word perfect or this word blameless does not mean sinless. No, another translation for this word is whole or completely his. And because of the context of this passage, the best phrase will be wholly reliant. So let's think about that with with this phrase in mind. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is wholly reliant. And this is important because this this is an obvious contrast to King Asa. Is it not? The author of Chronicles, he's trying to warn us, don't trust in yourself. Don't be like Asa. Don't rely on your resources. Be different. Act like Asa earlier in his reign, earlier in his kingdom, when he was trusting God with everything that he had. So you might ask, well, brother, that's all well and good, but what if my heart is not all in for him? What if I'm not trusting God like I need to? What hope is there for me? Church, one of the biggest problems that we face every single day, I believe, is that we think that we don't need God. Of course, we would never say that, right? Because that sounds really, really bad. But I think our actions prove it, do they not? How many of you, the first thing that you do when you wake up in the morning How many of you just turn to your phone or you turn to the TV or you make coffee or you walk the dog or or fill in the blank, right? I I think it's so evident in our lives by the things that we do and the things that we don't do that we are not trusting in God like we need to. We are not wholly reliant on the Lord like we need to. And I pray that the Lord would convict us this morning. Men, how often do we pride ourselves and our ability to provide for our family. You say, brother, I thought I was supposed to do that. Yes, of course. But does the way that you work, does the way that you provide for your family prove that you are trusting in yourself or you're trusting in the Lord entirely? Moms, grandmoms, the way that you provide for your family, the way that you take care of your family, does it prove that you are trusting in the Lord or you're trusting in yourself? 
Are you doing it with God's strength, with God's enablement, with God's power, or your own? Some might argue, well, brother, those are just small things. No, these things are not small things to God. So what does it look like to renounce self-reliance? Because that's really what the author is pointing us towards. It's the idea of repenting of our self-reliance. What does this look like practically? Church, let's go to Psalm 51, verse 10. This is a very fitting verse to, uh, to refer to because of the author. Author being David. Obviously, Second Chronicles features David and his ministry in a very unique and powerful way. And so I, I love this verse. And I think it gets at, at the heart of what the author is calling us to this morning. Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Let's read that one more time. And church, let's meditate on that just for a moment. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Church, the act of bringing our hearts to God and asking him to cleanse us, that is what it means to be all in. That is what it means to be wholly reliant on God. And the reason why I share the history of Second Chronicles and where it fits in the narrative of Scripture is because if you zoom out from this story, if you zoom out from Second Chronicles 16, we begin to see how this passage, it is causing us to want a better king, King Jesus. The author of Second Chronicles, he was sharing this version of the story to remind his audience that God is still for them. And this was supposed to cause, uh, this supposed to give them hope and cause them to hope and long for a better king. Ultimately, we know today that king is Jesus Christ. And church, we are so privileged today because we don't have to hope and long for Christ like they did. Why is that? Because he already came, right? He lived the perfect sinless life that we could not live. He died the sacrificial death that we could not die. And then what did he do three days later? He rose again, conquering sin and death. And what did, what did he take with him to the grave? All of our sins and all of our shame. This truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it should be a constant reminder that leads us to repent of our self-reliance. So you say, brother, I'm struggling uh, there are some areas in my life that I'm trusting too much in myself or I'm trusting too much in my relationships or too much in my job and my finances. I'm not relying on God like I need to. What hope is there for me? Well, the only hope is Jesus, friend. The only hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because the good news of the gospel, it teaches us that we are able to rest and trust in what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. And if this truth, that the truth of Jesus, the truth of the gospel, if this truth leads you into thinking that you just need to work harder for God's acceptance or for God's recognition, or if it causes you to never rely on God for his enabling work in your life, then friend, you don't understand the gospel. 
Why do I say that? Because the gospel is good news for those of us who understand that we are nothing without him. There is no way in the world that we could ever make it, that we could ever be reconciled to the Father, but by the grace of God. So if that is you this morning, I encourage you today to repent of your sins and trust in Christ alone for salvation. For the rest of us that that believe that, yes, we are born again, we are in Christ, then the good news of the gospel should shape us into people who are constantly relying on God's grace every waking moment, day by day, moment by moment. He is all we have, and he is all we need. In closing, number one, let's not forget, God is looking for hearts that are completely reliant on him. How does this happen again? Remember, friend, only Jesus can cleanse our hearts. If we are empty and we are needy, then we are a perfect match for his grace. Number two, let's never forget that we are not in this battle alone. God is more than willing to give us his strong support. Now, how does this apply to missions? Obviously, you brought a missionary in. I have to say something about missions. How does this relate to missions? Church, do you remember the commandment that God has given us to go into all the world, preach the gospel to those who have never heard, make disciples of all nations? How do you think God wants us to accomplish this task? Through self-reliance? Through just giving more money to missions? Through just sharing the gospel with more people? You know, although some of those things are really good things, that's not where we start, friend. No, we start by checking our hearts. Are we wholly reliant on God for everything in our life? Or are there still some areas of our life where we need to repent of our self-reliance? So once we get that settled, the outflow of this truth, it should cause us to take mission seriously, to take mission seriously, because we know that God is more than willing to give us his strong support. Let's pray.